awareness has no location. Mindful awareness, like consciousness itself, it simply arises in a moment of experience when conditions come together. Light and the inner sensitivity of the eye. And so there's seen consciousness or mindfulness of that seen consciousness. Sound vibrations, the sensitivity of the ear. And there's hearing consciousness. Or if we're mindful, a mindful awareness of that seen consciousness or sound vibration. In the same way, through all the senses, our awareness arises from within the body. The elemental nature comes together with the largest organ of the body, the skin, and we feel body consciousness. And if we're mindful, we're aware of the body consciousness or the physical, elemental natures. So as we sit in the beginning, it's strengthening to feel this mindful awareness and knowing the felt sense, knowing of the whole body from no particular location. The entire constellation of the body is felt as simply sitting And if you can't feel the entire energy flow, elemental flow of the sitting body, there's your hands or feet or chest or belly as it rises and falls. In doing the metta dhamma practice, we call up an awareness It's just moment and one moment followed by another. Feel the body and in the moment of feeling the body that mindfulness is imbued with metta (coughs) as a tender connection. Feeling the body with a softness or for some of you, the emotion. Some of us at various times feel the body, at sometimes we feel the metta emotion. The heart that's open and connected to life, living things, living beings, elemental nature. Or how metta affects psychological states, how it draws together other mental, skillful mental states, energy joy, calm, equanimity, stillness. No one way to be experienced, this metta mind, metta heart, or metta body. As we sit here quietly this morning, After feeling yourself in the field of metta or in the stream of metta, however you experience it, for some time, if you'd like to, call up karuna, the heart-mind of compassion. 
and as a proximate cause, you could bring to mind some being, an animal, a person, who you're not so intimate with that it may cause grief or sorrow, but you're close enough that you care about them. And they're experiencing some kind of pain or lack or overwhelm or stress. And just bring them to mind so that they, they stir this innate nature in our hearts that when it faces distress, anxiety or pain, the, the natural response of the heart is neither sorrow or grief nor fear of the suffering, but this pure, positive, pleasant sensation of caring. And once you feel that, you can either sustain the connection with the person or drop the conceptual image and abide in the field of karuna, compassionate care, fearless compassion. And at any time, you come back to the meta field or meta ways as you see fit.
door. Just noticing where awareness is now. If it's the affectionate awareness of metta, the compassionate awareness of karuna, or awareness of bodily sensation, sense experience, thoughts. Notice in our practice how it is the intuitive discerning wisdom, intuitive knowing that discerns the difference between a metta moment and a karuna moment, the flavor of metta's connection, tenderness, warmth, acceptance, and this discerning, intuitive knowing that knows the response of the heart to pain or suffering or distress in caring, a compassionate feeling. And in the last couple of minutes of the sitting, just to exercise that discerning wisdom part of our practice, it's not self referenced, it's not our thoughts, to discern the difference between the metta and the karuna, compassion, and the mudita, enduring joy, empathy. And call up, may empathetic joy arise, or I incline the heart to empathetic joy. Abide in this deep, innate nature, consciousness of appreciation, this deep rest of nurture, of unbridled enthusiasm, joy, delight. What can help kickstart that conceptually is to bring to mind or have a felt sense of someone we love dearly who is currently experiencing in their life a lot of happiness, fulfillment. Abundance, joy. And let that felt sense or image of that person be the mirror or the catalyst for that joy to arise in your heart. In other words, how does it feel when someone so close to you is happy? And abide in that feeling.
Anything we can help you with this morning? Why do you say enduring joy? Enduring. Can I repeat the question? The question is, what is the enduring part, aspect, of what's meant by enduring joy? It's one of the translations that I've seen and liked because... It implies, uh, it's just another term that implies being able to abide, like we can abide in metta, in the metta stream or field. And, um, and it has this enduring or lasting way of, of um, um, restoring our feeling of self-worth, goodness and value. get in touch with metta, something that keeps coming up for me is gratitude. Is that related or is that something It's related else? to all of them. It, it's, it's its own unique, skillful, healthy mental state, uh, of which there are many. So it's, it's not the, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a vague, it's, it's its own unique, just like metta, just like compassion, but it, it accompanies, it can accompany metta. So we feel connection and love for someone. Then another moment can feel gratitude to that. Yeah. With the mudita part, if you're calling up somebody and there's still a tinge of, honestly, like jealousy or it's not here, but yet you have some joy for them too yes. because there's something lovely about right. that period. Yeah. What do you do? Do you go to somebody that you fully feel... You can hang out there for a while, so that it 
strengthens that discerning, intuitive wisdom. So you're not judging it, but you're calling up the intuitive knowing that knows the difference. And then, then I would say for a while, abide in the more pure metta, uh, mudita subject. Because when it gets really strong, then it's, it's like a laser force. It just goes out and you feel it in that unspecified way. And even with a person where you feel the tinge of jealousy, it, 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 the jealousy can disappear. Of course, it can reappear in another moment. <laughs> but every time we see it disappear, it weakens <laughs> the whole the habit of jealousy and envy in the mind. So we want to see it disappear. We just don't want to ever get into this project mentality of perfection. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I can't even remember. Yeah. And any time that I remember joy, it was always attached to some condition. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, a pleasant or unpleasant condition? Uh, pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. And in trying to muster mudita, mm-hmm. I'm getting the opposite. Good. Especially worth, worthlessness, abysmal worthlessness. Good. Can you feel the sensation of that worthlessness? Yes, all night. Uh, <laughs> so in other words, you also go into the story of the worthlessness. Well, it can, it, it can proliferate. So that's a very important um, distinction of discernment. The proliferating story and the sensation itself. Healing is in feeling. So when we can feel purely, without the proliferation, even for a moment, that we start to restore that worthiness. Remember, it took our student uh, a three-month retreat, somewhere in the midst of a three-month retreat, after feeling that he had lost his worthiness for 45 years. So that's, you know, Michelle's teaching on patience really is helpful here. It helps us, okay, I'm feeling unworthy. This part of this is the story, you know, and the judgment, drowning in the feelings and so forth. And every once in a while, just try not let the thoughts get in the way of the feeling sensation of unworthiness. See if there is a physical component to it, as well as the emotion. Uh, and, and just always know that the story is not the thing itself. The story may be about the thing itself, but it's the thing itself that we need to feel. It's the emotion itself. It's the fear, it's the unworthiness, it's the inadequacy that we need to mindfully, or met, uh, with metta, feel for that healing to, to arise. Okay. Sorry? I hope I can remember both things, but um, I'll at least remember one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll remember two. Uh, the reason that Stephen and I like to teach the four immeasurables rather than just metta is um, that one of the things we both learn from doing these Brahma Vihara practices, like for months at a time on retreat, is that that we tend to have one that's an entry point for us into deeper. Um, and it, that you're meant to like try to cultivate that 
for a long time, a long, long time. The easy, the easiest one of the four, once you get a taste of them and you start to get to know yourself, and we're all different, then you, you really try to have that as your anchor. So if, if mudita is a hard one, then you wouldn't spend a lot of time with it, but you would start to see that the one that's the most difficult is definitely kind of like a rotor-rooter. <laughs> it kind of goes right in there and, and pulls out the, the, uh, the deepest toxins. Um, so that it's important to know, you know. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, like, for example, if there's a lot of pain in one's life, often compassion is, a, is the easiest doorway because it's so accessible. <laughs> so, you know, dukkha... If you have a lot, if you're a dukkha type, then compassion is just like you know your best friend. And for other people, mudita is the best friend. It really like it, it's like, and this is why. One time, actually, when we were teaching in Santa Fe years ago, somebody raised their hand when we got to mudita, and had been trying to do metta for twenty years, and felt like a total failure, couldn't do it. And he was so excited, he actually interrupted the sitting. <laughs> and he just went, he was like, oh, I feel something. <laughs> because it, it's hard, you know, it's just, so we might get to equanimity and somebody will be like, oh, connect. So that, you know, that's a, that's a very important part of it. Um, I mean, and the reason, one of the main reasons we teach the, the four immeasurables also is that we, I, we also had a good friend that had been practicing Vipassana for 25 years and, and learned the metta and said he had felt like he'd been um, standing in the sun for 25 years without ever feeling its warmth. Mm-hmm. Pretty motivating to teach the loving kindness, right? So, um, I, so that, like, there's different ways that this, these practices will touch us. Uh, and then it, the other thing I would offer is that um, there, there's a way when these teachings were brought to the West that they, they tended to be pretty intellectual, intellectually brought in. And... Um, There, there, are, there are many teachings that you get exposed to in Burma that in some ways there was a kind of arrogance, I think, by some of the Western, early Western Buddhist teachers that didn't, that kind of over, like, stepped over preliminary, what they would think of as sort of preliminary practices. And uh, in Burma you see that these monks and nuns and lay people practice these practices for years and years, um, to stabilize, I believe, stabilize the um, the total being. So, for example, the happy Sayadaw came to this area of Burma when he was very young, probably seven or eight, you know, became a monk very young. And uh, he built a pagoda on the top of the, in this place in the Sagain Hills, and it's, it's, 
No one is ever there. It's very interesting, and it's so beautiful. It's like a pale blue, and it stands out because all the rest are white with gold. But this is like a cool pale blue. And when you walk in, you walk through it, and there's a space, and then there's these little steps that go up to this beautiful little Buddha in a like a door. You have to open a door. And um, there's usually somebody has swept that place and put flowers there, and it, the Buddha looks like there's lipstick, you know, and and, and if it's cold, people put a, a blanket over it, and it there's a very personal relationship, you know. There are people that brush the Buddha's teeth in Burma. It's a you see, it's very it's very much like a person, not some remote thing. That it's a personal relationship. And then he spent years, he would have a mala and touch a bead, look at the Buddha, and say worthiness. And then internalize that. For years, just look at the Buddha. <laughs> this dude loves the Buddha, by the way. But, you know, it's like you just feel this teaching that I feel like came through him to me like around that just like sometimes I'll be in an airport and I'll just be worthiness look at someone you know just worthiness worthy you know just you can do that anywhere but just seeing everybody's worthiness um, do you see what I mean it's like we tend to get into getting something from this practice very specific which is um, it's so much broader that's all I, I want to say about that. Anyone, Brahma Vihara, we practice, we are, we're, we're nurturing all of them. You can always be assured of that. We pay attention to each one individually to bring out our own understanding, a deeper intuitive understanding of the flavors. But it's like, it's like one jewel with four facets or one flower with four petals. So they're always up. And by learning to do this one by one, then in life it's spontaneous. We don't even think about if we need metta, do I need metta here, or you know, empathetic joy, or do I need compassion or equanimity? It's just there because we've paid attention. And and most of our life outside of dhamma, you know, are are distractions and how not to pay attention. So that's why we teach we teach the whole package, as Michelle says, because it is a whole package. It's one. It's one mind. One Brahma Vihara mind with four beautiful fragrances. Yeah. Um, so I never um, heard uh, in past retreats the connection that you made yesterday, or I don't know what day it was, of um, the, what, what I heard as kind of the um, growing up of Metta, Karuna, Medita, um, equanimity. And um, so what, you know, in terms of uh, my own practice and healing of, you know, the, um, the personal and, uh, and yet not personal, um, for up until now, up until this morning, you know, much of the meta has been helping to heal and um, untie the karmic knot of very early baby preverbal wounding. And um, 
today I feel like um, some from dreams and some just from today's uh, practice, I'm feeling older and not 11. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Response would be to that in terms of um, abiding in that male mm-hmm. love. Right. Do you want to go for it? <laughs> no, I, um, it's a. Do you have an immediate? Anyway. An immediate response? Well, it, you know, it comes to mind when the, the Metta Sutta. Your metta is meant to be unspecified and radiated to all beings in all directions, but uh, it can also be specific. When you see the metta sutta, which you chant every night, um, when I was doing these practices for months at a time, I'd really dwell a lot where, for example, where it says all females. I'd dwell a long time there, and then all males. I'd dwell and abide a long time there. And then, you know, all humans in general and animals and so forth until it became a felt experience and, and not just the sutta words. And I could, I could feel the, the, the masculine nature of, of the universe and then the feminine nature of the universe and the animal-like nature of which we're half, you know, we're part. And then the, the human, more evolved consciousness part of all beings everywhere. I found that really helped a lot. I spent time with that. In the same way we say, if and when you use the phrases, use them until you start to feel this emergence or welling, and then let go of the phrases and and dwell in that welling. I think that that, that the question of uh, personal and impersonal, that they're both here in this uh, multidimensional universe and that there's that the feminine, not female, but feminine energy and masculine, not male. Is it, um, and then there's deeper than that, where, you know, like an image of the Buddha, <clears throat> technically... It, uh, the meaning of it would be that there's a completion of masculine and feminine energy, even though the imagery is tricky, right? That um, the Buddha image is based on the Greek god, god Apollo, Apollo. It came 450, 500 years later. So, um, again, imagery is very interesting. Uh, the Buddha used to be represented as an empty seat or a, a footprint. Or, or a tree, or a tree um, which I think, um, depending, I think that how we connect to imagery is very important. 
So, so again, that like the meaning of the Buddha is that there's a, a fullness of both the masculine and feminine and a going deeper than that. You know, that the love is not one or the other, but both. Mm-hmm. So, I actually had the same experience Steve did when we when we, when I went through the all females and all males uh, in that, those categories. It just brings up a tremendous amount of stuff and. Uh, you kind of drop into that more general universal energy. So, um, you know, I think you can find it. You know, I think you could find it with a male chipmunk. I mean, there, it's not like you have to, really, it's not like you have to look that far for that energy, mm-hmm. but it's being able um, to receive it. Mm-hmm. So that will be that as you go through that place of finding where you can access that energy. And then the healing is in what happens when you try to receive it and, and how long you can, we talk, we chara, connect, sustain. And then that's the whole process. It's powerful. Yeah. Could I just ask one more brief thing? Yeah. Because there were two things that were... That, um, the first, um, see, the lightness of what you just said, I hate to go back to jealousy, but it, <laughs> I had a question about jealousy, and then the question came up before, and then um, and then you were talking about the distractions of the world, or, or um, and, and I think what happened with me with this bringing the person up to with the joy was, it was a person who came up right away, and <clears throat> so happy, and then <clears throat> I saw that the crack in that for me was that the judgment of why that person was happy. It wasn't so much jealous of their happiness, but it was the crack of my judgment of where they're happy, connected to my jealousy of, <laughs> of that, because it's a personal thing, but, but also part of it is the distraction that, that makes them happy. Their happiness is kind of connected to the distraction of what kind of abundance in the world I might, you know, be um, recipient to and happy about. <laughs> but also, um, my jealousy kind of connected to where that person gets happy. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just, um, I'll just move to, you know, little Beatrice who just beams, you know, joy, and I'm, I don't have that feeling. So I moved on, but I thought, I liked your answer about trying to pierce through, you know, and, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to, how. It's always I about our own heart. piercing's going to go through the crack, kind of, you know? It's always about our own heart. Mm. You know, so wherever the mind feels pulled to personalize, just remember that, you know, Carl Jung spoke of the psychoactive power of imagery or visualization. So we're using this part of the practice, the visualized conceptualizations and so forth, as a tool. And, and its main purpose is to mirror our, our own heart. You know, so then it's to try, again and again, to try and drop the personalized part, feel the jealousy, feel the crack, feel the jealousy, feel the pull, and just come back, what's here right now, in this moment, in this heart? And when, you know, abiding when it's joy and when it's being pulled toward 
the crack and the jealousy and whatnot. If you can come back to one of your anchors like metta or mindfulness, if that's really important. We need healing is feeling. We need to really feel even the little jealousies, not just the big ones. And then, but always related. Always realize the work is here. It's always inside. It's not about what we think of as out there. And, and having a little Beatrice is a, an mm. anchor, is an anchor. So that's a that's mm. a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's relief. I mean, it's not it, it's relief, but it's you know it's another power place to go back to that other one. Right. You know, right. because I think that person steps forward, and of course, you know, they deserve my my you know my. Um, wanting them to be happy, you know, happy for their happiness, right? right? If I don't judge them right well, away. But you deserve it first. Mm-hmm. We, we deserve it first. Oops. We deserve us first. If we don't have these Brahma Viharas, you know, re-emerging, reconnecting mm-hmm. with them, th- then they're of less use to all those we love and all of the beings. So, so it's a really important, you know, and the Buddhists spoke very uh, importantly about the critical um, focus on ourselves, that if our own hearts aren't free, if our own hearts, if we don't feel that unconditional love for ourselves first, it's just less that we give others. And I think also part of the judgments we go through is also how we deepen, <coughs> it's how we deepen our understanding of what we truly want and what we truly wish. So, you know what? What we see in this process is a deepening of our own understanding of of what brings happiness. So the more you understand that, then one is susceptible to judgment, but of like certain kinds of happiness, and that's part of the. Um, work is is being able to feel that kind of happiness for somebody that might love popcorn and be eating popcorn mm-hmm. and that like that that's a certain kind of mudita and then there's another kind of mudita that might be that you see somebody really like liberate themselves and then like that would be a very deep kind of Mm-hmm. So as you, as you, as each person individually deepens their own practice, then they're going to want to wish that for other people, of course. Which draws up what you already have. Mm-hmm. It brings back that impersonal experience of when I was eleven. It had nothing to do with me or anything I did. It's just there. But it doesn't mean that we can't feel joy for. Watching somebody see a hummingbird and tearing up, you know, it's like any kind of joy. Joy is so important an experience on, on this earth as a human that to be able to wish, like to feel some mudita for someone for any kind of joy is very important. And, and the Buddha encouraged all kinds of different levels of joy 
what he called dharma pleasures, delight, as as stepping stones to full realization. That, that's what we're here for, you know. And of course, we have to feel its lack and have to feel a lot of the pain along the way. But it's all inclining towards, sloping toward these profound fountains of joy we already have when, can, when the conditions come together. I think sometimes about when you talked about the pencils that you gave the child mm-hmm. and how happy they were for the pencil. You know, you know and, then the, and then the thought of, oh, that person put too much butter on the popcorn. You know? <laughs> That's kind of what, or that person has a jet plane. You know? Right. But, you know, happiness is happiness. Hmm? Right, and you, you can tell that we can be judgmental of a superficial kind of happiness, but that's our own judgment. That's just judgment. And then we're suffering. We need compassion at that moment. But, and it's, it's, of course, again, you wish people for a deeper, like the idea of, like, may all beings be happy and peaceful. That's usually meaning may they be liberated. Yes, and I, but if you're hungry and you get a piece of food, there's nothing like it. Did you, Elaine? Um, I'm, I'm working on um, small is okay. Because I've noticed myself each time I feel the kind of blossoming of one of these feelings that immediately a craving comes in for wanting it to get bigger and grow and be profound. So I'm constantly kind of noticing that and trying to bring myself back. Um, and um, I think some of the language, I'm, I'm finding some of the language is a pull towards that craving, the enduring the, the, the big, beautiful, profound words. Mm-hmm. I kind of I'm working with, with hearing those without trying to turn them into a, a longing for them. I'm finding that really difficult. A, a Sri Lankan teacher and friend of mine said in Nepali there's 28 terms for desire. Four of them are unskillful. <laughs> so, so many of our desires, desire for metta, desire for loving kindness, desire for fulfillment, for healing, do not necessarily have that that clinging, uh, tension, craving, self-centeredness. They're just for exactly that, to let the blooming continue, to let the pond continue to fill, to let the warmth fulfill its nature of the Brahma Viharas. So not to judge that. It's a good it's a good wanting. Skillful wanting, healthy wanting. It's. A, I think it's such a. Um, when we were given the traditional phrases, um, they put you through a lot. So, for example, the phrase I was given to do for Mudita was, "May your happiness and success never end." That was the translation. And then you know, you, you <laughs> <laughs> and eventually. I actually was sitting in a retreat with Steve when I was given that phrase, and it was like, it was like it had, for me, it had no equanimity in it. 
Okay, there's no wisdom in it. Like that, you know, are you kidding me? Of course it is, right? So there was that whole dynamic of struggling with the phrase, and then I wrote Stephen out, like, what? Because he had done this practice before me, and he wrote, oh, it's just, change it to, I appreciate the joy in your life. You see, it takes out. See, the trouble is, and again, I want to say, like, after spending some time with Burma, I got a sense of, like, if you grow up with this stuff, it's like osmosis, and they're not, they learn it pre-verbally, and they're not necessarily having to go through the the translation. It's it's different. So each Brahma-vihara, I found, like, the the compassion phrase I was given was, um... (laughs) May you be free from suffering. But it's like, duh, of course there's suffering, right? So you have you have to I Steve again, I wrote him a note and he said, change it to I care about your pain. Do you see it? And actually the and so with the with the meta phrases, you know, may you be safe and protected, may you be from inner and outer harm, etc. I change them to may I be happy as I am. May I be peaceful with whatever's happening. Because you see, you can change them to that they already have the equanimity in them. They already have the wisdom in them. And uh, that's a process. And it's it's a wonderful process because you learn that actually, yes, each Brahma-vihara is infused with wisdom. That there is, there's already the understanding that it's impermanent. So if you, however people do it, like Steve did these in Pali, so he didn't have to retranslate it at all. I had two sets of phrases, one for when I felt like the equanimity was there and and the the phrases didn't really get in the way, and then another set of phrases for when I needed the words to match the wisdom. Does does that make sense? So, But I also really... um, respect the process one goes through in this case because also today in the course of the retreat today will be the day where you really start to feel the possibility for deeper and the wanting more is going to come up it's it's really important to to respect this process that you can't you can't get to equanimity without really wanting more you have to see it and that it's so hard, you know. Of course we long for more. It's okay to want more. You, you can't go deeper without experiencing that. It's good practice. Wanting without expectation, you know. May I have just a little more, please? <laughs> and then another moment. <laughs> that's a good that's yeah. great that's a glimpse so um, we're, we're underway right. we're, we're in the the Dhamma <laughs> Brahma Vihara Dhamma current it's carrying us all along you know so little adjustments it's like body, a little bit of body language, and you know, just lean a little bit this way if it feels like you're, we're getting too close to, a, you know, scratchy vines and and or or rocks on this side. 
just slight inclinations of adjustment, but mostly f- feeling carried by the current itself. That's what's happening to all of us here now. And who rings the bell for the next sit? Who rings the bell to call everybody in for the next sit? You do. Could you ring it? And, uh, this is where I get so non-conceptual. But uh, at five past eleven, so the sitting will be at eleven fifteen. Does that make sense? Yeah. So and then the bell will ring around twelve fifteen. So good. So have a good blocking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.